So I found a new way to be terrible at coffee. Excellent. Which is apparently you can have too much milk in your coffee. That's just got a nice coffee. Isn't that good? So for Christmas, my mother got a proper Breville, like espresso machine. Everyone's like making really nice coffees for it. I was hanging for something on the way home today. So we called in there and I immediately started making myself one. Took your advice from the previous podcast on just smash the actual grind. Yep. Because that's worked for me in the past. Yep. Uh, and this time I just paid no attention to how much milk I was steaming. So I think I ended up with about two times as much milk as you should have. And it was just awful. Oh, uh, no. Well, it's six o'clock here. So I'm just drinking wine. <laughs> So everyone, welcome to the proper first episode of Affix, our continued eight-year conversation between Brian and Chris, just rocking it out. Essentially, what we'll be looking to do is continue how we've normally rolled with these conversations for the last eight years, talking about very nerdy things and often diving into the specifics of some pretty detailed writing, just nerdy writing, I suppose. It feels to me like what we're interested in is, I guess, the borderline between economics and philosophy. We're interested in why humans are good, why humans do what they do, the lived experience of being a human, but through a fairly technocratic mathematical analytic lens, which economics tends to lend itself to. That's where I find the most interest. Yeah, definitely. So what we take is those principles of economics and philosophy, apply them to writings we see in the world, oftentimes detailed blog posts on the internet, which is what we're going to be getting into today. But it can also be sources such as podcasts or decent book reviews or books that we see out in the world and even popular culture, popular movies and how that can be extrapolated into more general philosophical arguments or economic arguments, that kind of technocratic engineering mindset. This is the conversation that we like to have. This is the conversation we have, applying an engineering analytical mindset to humanity with all its quirks and foibles and how those two interact, which I just find fascinating because I think people are ultimately the most interesting thing, but I can't help but be an analytical guy. So I apply the analytical framework to democracy, societies, the good life, the bad life, everything in those genres. Yeah, it's fun. It's not just a rehashing of the blog posts and whatnot that we see. It's building on top of those. It's bolting stuff on the end or sometimes, you know, teeing each other up to read the thing. And that's kind of where we get to the affix name, which is an affix can be either a prefix or a suffix. So you could have a prefix being things like im or un. So it is impossible or undone. And a suffix can be the thing that you put on the end of a word. So to turn something into a verb, you put ing on the end. So it was amazing rather than being amazed or that kind of thing. So that's the kind of general theme for affix. You know, that's a nice way to have a very generic name for a podcast. That's for sure. Yeah, we'll probably go with the, the CGP Grey school of thought to list one of our many influences that you don't want to name your podcast something's too specific because as you change your mind about what you want it to be, you want that name to just float in the heavens and mean whatever you want it to mean at any given time. 100% that. So today, our first topic, we're going to be getting something, you know, definitely not timeless in the CGB Grey fashion, but we're going to be talking a bit about a guy who's writing some pretty big, interesting posts on coronavirus in particular. I don't personally read him. I've read a couple of pieces, which have been certainly eye-opening, but it is a blogger called ZVI. So I believe it's pronounced ZV. Yeah, I think it's ZV. Zvi Mashowitz. Some of my friends might recognize his name. And like, honestly, this is the reason I started reading him. So he posts 
posts in the communities that I post. He's a big less wronger, which is the part of the rationalist community. But the reason I know his name is because he's a Magic the Gathering Hall of Famer and he's one of the best players of all time. He's Magic the Gathering guy. He's a Magic the Gathering guy. Have I not told you this? He's a Magic the Gathering guy. No, I had no idea he was Magic the Gathering. I thought he was just like some rando in the rationalist community. But there you go. So him, Audrey Tang, you know, all these Magic the Gathering guys. MT Gox, the Bitcoin repository that famously got raided. Yep. I've heard of theories that Magic is a very analytical game. A lot of these guys end up working at hedge funds, which is V is one. And I've heard the theory that Magic is not about just bringing the best deck. It's about bringing the best deck versus everyone else's deck. So there's a lot of reading the metagame, they call it. So if I'm playing a very fast deck, that will work exceptionally well in an environment of really slow decks. But if there's a bunch of medium decks, they're just going to be just fast enough to keep up with me and then crush me in the later game. So a lot of the game is not just being the best by an objective measure. It's being the best in relation to everyone else, which is exactly how financial markets work, that you have to have the opinion that everyone else is wrong about something and then you can capitalize that on opinion. So there are a surprising number of ex-pro magic players who now work in hedge funds and make a squillion dollars doing that instead. But yes, so once I saw Zvi's writing and read one or two of his pieces, I'm like, I have to follow this guy because he actually still writes about magic sometimes, not in his main blog, but he does guest writings on other blogs that I read about the latest magic metagame, which is also interesting if you're into that. So how long has he been blogging for all up? I, I don't know. It feels like it feels like a decade. Like if I look back over the best of his posts, it seems like he's been posting on Less Wrong since I'm going to say a decade, right? He's been writing a while and he's been writing on magic blogs for probably since he was a Hall of Famer. He seems to be one of those communicator guys. He's got a good style to him. He's angry. He's one of the angriest bloggers that I read, particularly at the moment because he is angry about the West's response to COVID. Very, very angry indeed. The main, 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 main focus of his blog at the moment is our response to COVID and he tracks a lot of metrics and he has a lot of opinions about what we're doing and why and his opinions are often not that we are trying to save the most lives, it's that we are trying to save face or gain status or signal party allegiance. So he's just writing a lot on the West more generally being, you know, Europe, North America, presumably Australia, New Zealand in there a little bit versus the East. Does he touch on other frameworks, Middle East, Africa? He doesn't really seem to talk to them as much. I think that he lives in the West. He lives in New York City and so has strong opinions about the politics of the United States in particular and finds a lot lacking there. Yeah, in terms of what we do and why, he has a lot of complaints about shutting down outdoor children's play areas in that there's very little evidence that any infection has ever come across in those outdoor play areas. And it is, in his opinion, just a message to send, you know, we're not allowed to have fun because people are dying and I'm on the side of lockdowns and keeping everyone in line. So I'm going to make a bunch of stupid rules that don't help at all just to signal how serious I am about making rules that maybe do help and say which side of this fight I'm on. Because that was a big thing at the start, right? And still working through overall the processes now of coronavirus. The assumption at the start was it was all particle driven. So it was not air assault. It was whatever the opposite of that is. Fomites, I think is the word because I missed it was in the big fat quiz of the year. And I, like, I know I know that word. Infected surfaces. So you touch, you know, I touch a door handle and then you touch the door handle after me and then you get infected as a result of, you know, that second order skin contact and it's on the actual government advertising now is they're still doing like the hot hand oh you touched here and here's the invisible fomites that's carrying COVID-19 which is just not the actual science that's lasted it's the story they put out there in the first place it was the assumption and it's not real yeah and this would be another one of these theories then that in order to save face and not be proven wrong the governments and the CDC and the WHO are now locked into no what we said was always right we're never ever wrong about anything you have to believe us we're an institution of the west and it's important that people believe in institutions which I agree with, but now they can never back down from this initial claim that it's fomite transmission rather than like it's an airborne virus primarily would be the latest science as I understand it. So it's actually, it's even worse than Big Brother where we were always at war with East Asia. It's no, no, no. 
we may be at war with East Asia now, but we're just going to say we're at war with Oceania. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Now we're at war with everyone for no reason. Even if we weren't ever, you know, even if fomites were never a problem, we can never ever admit that any longer because we have to save face. Seems to be some of the opinion. And, you know, he has extremely critical of New York particularly because he lives there. So there were rules in the early days where COVID positive patients had to be accepted by nursing homes. So they, if they were discharged from the hospital, it was illegal for a nursing home to say, no, there's a bunch of old vulnerable people here and if they get COVID, they may all die. No, it would be cruel to the person who is infected to not let them go back to their home. So legally you have to accept, which probably killed, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people, that kind of decision. I don't know what the alternative is, but certainly that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Tricky one, like we clearly know now, and we even knew at the time that that was the most vulnerable population. Like it took a matter of weeks to determine that. But at the same time, your argument there is one that often comes up or not even your argument there, but your illusion there being, well, where do you put them otherwise? And is that going to be a better situation than shipping them back to the nursing homes? The way that we're playing it now, yes, it seems obvious that keeping them in safe wards in hospitals, that's the better way to do it, a more secure or less transmissible way to do it, perhaps. Or at the very least, you're not corralling everyone who's the most vulnerable population together with those seats. You're just having a more general population within a hospital. The way you can get better control. But then the hospitals get overloaded kind of thing. And I will say, Zvi, you know, and us too, and the rationalist community, very systematizing, very numbers driven. So he's rarely going to look at what's better, best for the best individual person. He's going to look at total number of lives lost against America or against the world. And certainly you would expect if you bring an infected person into a nursing home, that's going to be several lives lost. And, you know, if you you can be hard-nosed about it. You can say that the initial life lost is a smaller number than many lives lost, thus on a societal scale is preferable, which are hard decisions to make. But he feels very strongly that that is the utilitarian correct way of looking at the world and that we should be saving the most lives basically on, on net, if not giving each individual life the most chance within their power to survive. I don't remember if I've read it in the post that will be more going into detail soon or if it was somewhere else, but it plays into the vibe of ethics that has come into the biomedical community of ethics, which is you don't actually want to hurt anyone's feelings in doing this. And if you turned away someone from going to a nursing home where they could get presumably good care from qualified staff in a nursing home rather than be ignored or worried about in a hospital, if you turn them away, they'll feel bad. And that's worth the price of a few lives if I can summarize where it is, it seems to be the way the biomedical community acts is that if there's deaths that can be blamed at the hands of doctors refusing to allow someone back into their care, that would be terrible. And the virus is just a natural thing. And if it kills a bunch of people, no one's really to blame. There is no blame for the deaths by the virus generally in the community. I am only to blame for the decisions that I made that directly impacted someone. So if a bunch of people got infected, well, that's sad, but it's not my fault. Whereas if I said, this person isn't allowed home, we have to, at worst case, turf them out on the street and they died. Well, then it's my fault that they died, even if fewer people overall die as a result of that decision. It's my act and my agency in that case, which had a direct impact, whereas inaction can often be seen to lack agency. Yeah, inaction is blameless, even if that inaction would cause more deaths to occur. Feels like a trolley problem for those pro familiar with trolley problem memes. Classic trolley problem memes. This is probably the most I've ever talked about coronavirus. I've talked with you a bit about it previous to this. I've mostly kept my opinions on coronavirus to myself. I've been quite restrained on it. And engaging in this conversation, this is how our conversations generally go. What we have is we're willing to explore a topic. We may not necessarily believe the views we're espousing intrinsically, but we'll raise them just so we can better explore the topic. I think it's important to understand what people who disagree with think. And I think it's important that listeners to the podcast don't be mean to me and say, Chris, you're a terrible person because of all the horrible views you hold. I may just be playing devil's advocate 
quite a lot on this podcast. I need you, Brian, to edit this in every 30 seconds or so for the rest of the podcast. All right, listeners, I know it's going to be boring, but I will hold you to this. We'll figure out a way to bring it into the like dubstep. Excellent. <laughs> no, it's it's a tricky one. You said last time we recorded that you were feeling a bit paranoid. Me talking about this makes me feel a bit paranoid. It's, it's a difficult topic and saving lives on net can mean making choices that you know will kill people, right? And I am no stranger to how terrible death is, right? It is, it is very close to my heart as given that all the listeners to the podcast, uh, my friends will well know my wife passed away less than six months ago and it is horrendous. It is horrendous. When people talk about trading off economic growth versus lives, I, I can no longer agree. I can agree only with trading lives against lives. That is the only thing that is important as a life to me. Uh, and sometimes economic growth feeds into that. Just a second order argument that can be made against trading off economic growth against lives, but it is not an easy thing for me to say that any life could be traded for anything other than more lives. The infinities at play when it comes to a life distort all other mathematics that you can apply economically. And economists do put a value on a life kind of thing. What is it? $4 million depending on, you know, the what is it? The, I think the, the Department of Transport in the UK has like this absurdly exact figure. It's like £6,854,000 and 482. And it's like, that's too much. You've thought about this too hard now. <laughs> the mathematics and the explorations behind those different valuations of life, there's so many points that you can pick apart, and this is my problem with it generally. It's like, okay, I get the argument how we get to the point where we value it at $4 million US dollars or whatever, right, where we're adjusting the risks that people take to get paid more, like danger money. Yeah, danger money is how they arrived at that number. You, if you work in an oil rig, which is known to have a, let's just call it easy, 1% chance of death per year, which I think is very, very high, you would need 1% of $4 million extra per year in order to accept that risk. So you'd need a $400,000 pay bump, which I don't think they get. So it's like a 0.1% risk of death and you get a $40,000 a year pay bump. The risk premium kind of thing is how they've calculated that. But that, you know, that assumes a linearity across like, oh, well, if you just paid me $4 million and I was guaranteed to die, I would take that deal. I would not take that deal. <laughs> me personally, that is not deal I would take. I don't think there are many people who would. Exactly. There's that linearity assumption and the broad-based assumption that it applies to every single life. Sure, that might be a statistical sampling of people where they go into areas where there is danger money available. 35 to 50-year-old male workers who have a visa and are able to travel to Iraq. But how representative is that number to 65-year-old widow females? Does it extrapolate to that point? Does it extrapolate to 72-year-old professors at Dunmore (laughs) University? George Mason University. Those kind of numbers are easy to throw around and easy to make arguments about. And again, dollar values on lives. I can see where the lives on lives argument makes sense. And converting things to dollar values is often a very useful tool. I mean, it maximizes the degree, right? In economics, and I've called you personally out on this several times, adjusting everything to dollars as a pure representative of human desire, it's close. I don't think it's closer than most people think it is. It's a good representation of desire, but I still think it is not perfect and it breaks down in scary ways at times. And the dollar value of a life is definitely one of those. Money has a lot of fungibility and transforming things into other things by representing it in dollar values. I think there's a lot of value to be explored there, but yet when it comes to actual mortality, it is incredibly tricky. Personally, my view on that is the views that incorporate quality adjusted life years and actually doing those calculations are a lot more relatable and a lot more understandable and feel more comprehensive uh, in the literature rather than just talking about raw dollars or GDP or even pure number of lives lost. I will say that it forces you to confront some of these decisions where you just say every life is worth infinite and, you know, I would not sacrifice one life to save a billion or, you know, I would not sacrifice one life to make a trillion lives in the future, 
50% better, you, you can you can fail to recognize the trade-offs that you're making anyway. And you get back into this inaction bias where if I take no action, then I'm blameless. And if I take action, you can blame me. So any negative effects are on me and possibly the positive effects are diffuse. By putting a dollar value to a life or to a quality, you know, quality adjusted life year or however you want to do it, it forces you to at least acknowledge that you're making trade-offs. Even when you want to take inaction, it puts a cost to that inaction, which I do think is is missing from a lot of the thought around the around the government response to COVID kind of thing. A common response I see in economic writings is to really argue super hard for the economic value of lives, assuming that everyone else who you are potentially posing this argument to is a solid deontologist and they just will follow any rules firmly. So they will never break a rule when it comes to harming a life. Never take a life. Yep. Yep. Which the point that you just made there around, well, you are still making inherent trade-offs between these points. And it doesn't necessarily have to be dollar denominated, but by representing things in quality adjusted life years of people, you can still make those points and make it more relatable rather than just being like, no, shut up, blah, blah, blah. You're an idiot because you refuse to actually acknowledge these trade-offs. Maybe if you framed the trade-off in a more friendly manner, it would seem less alienating to their audience. Yeah, and to to our audience who possibly aren't as used to Brian and I as talking about qualities and trade-offs, etc., the example in this case would be I make the decision that this elderly person with COVID cannot return to their home, which is presumably a nursing home in this example. Right? I am making their life. I am choosing to make their life worse. That choice is on me. The default is people go home when they're finished at hospital. I am making a choice that they cannot do that, and I am explicitly making their life worse. And what you are trading that off against is the 100 other people that they live with who are extremely, extremely vulnerable vulnerable to COVID. But if you just treat COVID as a natural fact of the world that no one can be blamed for if you let this person go home, well, we just followed all the defaults, then potentially dozens of them will die. That is the cost of your choice in in action. Your unwillingness to be harsh to one person is costing multiple people their lives. If we can ever get back to this article, he is extremely critical of that. Well, I didn't take any action. I just followed the defaults. Therefore, I am blameless. By refusing to take action, which would be known to cost less lives on net, because you are worried about harming one individual life that would be blamed at your feet, you are creating much greater harm to society, literally to people's lives. I think that's a good way of framing it. Following the default or defaulting to someone else made up this rule. So it's easy to act powerless. And I guess V's argument here, not having read it, would be aimed at those people who make the rules, right? Sure. And being able to fall back on authority from this is just the rules, this is what we have to think. This is a debate we read about all the time. It's human challenge trials for the vaccine. And I, like the interview we listened to with the head of, who was it? Was it the head of the, the CDC? No, it was the head of Operation Warp Speed. So former board member of Moderna. Uh, he had an interview with Stephen Dubner. No, Stephen Levitt. Or was it Stephen Dubner? One of the Stevens who wrote for economics. Who can tell them apart? And Operation Warp Speed is the challenge from the US government to get the vaccine pushed out as wide as possible, as quickly as possible. And we have achieved record speed. Unionally, vaccines take five to 10 years to develop. We have developed it and deployed it in less than a year, which is shockingly impressive. But a lot in the community we read is like, why can't we do human challenge trials, which is you infect some 50% with the vaccine and you infect 50% not with vaccine, maybe. And then you just deliberately expose them all to COVID. Like you actively give them the harmful version of the virus 
and check whether the vaccine works that way. And there are a whole lot of ethicists saying that actively harming someone is unethical under all circumstances. It doesn't matter that the US is losing 2,000 lives plus per day to this virus. If we were to kill one person through these challenge trials, and they would be voluntary, no one's asking to draft people, they would be well compensated, you'd pay a lot of money, they would tend to be younger probably so that you have the least chance of them dying. And through that mechanism, potentially we could find out that the vaccine works much, much quicker than the months and months and months that phase three trials tend to take. Now, there is some pushback as to whether this actually works. Let's leave that aside. It's again, it's the problem of the ethics is by deliberately exposing the virus to people, we are directly liable for the harm by doing normal trials where we just vaccinate people and let them out into the wilderness where they have a low chance of catching COVID or so you would hope, although that seems less and less true in the US every day. Um, We can find out naturally whether these vaccines work, but it will take months and months and months to collect the appropriate data about whether it's actually helpful. So the argument is that by by pushing harder and doing these challenge trials, we could have had a vaccine in June and we could be all vaccinated by now. In contrast to the standard trials mechanisms, phase three mechanisms that we currently have, where you have a certain population of placebo and vaccinated people, which have a trigger of viewpoint where a certain amount of the population have caught COVID. Presumably, you want them mostly to be in the placebo group. By doing a human challenge trial, you can accelerate that infection process and greatly accelerate the time that you validate that a vaccine works or doesn't. And by accelerating that, you are effectively accelerating your time to getting a vaccine out into the market and you are saving those lives who would otherwise have been infected in those weeks difference between having a normal phase three trial versus a human challenge trial. And it's a tough one because those are fairly abstract lives, right? If someone gets COVID and you have a miracle cure and you inject them with the miracle cure and they stop having COVID, it's very obvious that you've had a good chance of saving their life. If you get a vaccine out six months earlier and a bunch of people who would have gotten COVID never ever get it, it's sort of hard to know who those people were and whether they might have recovered any way, and it's a much more diffuse, difficult to quantify benefit. It is undoubtable that thousands of people are losing their lives per day to COVID and that if we had a vaccine, they would not do that. It's not surprising that this discussion has come up in what we read because we are so heavily focused on economics. And one of the common themes in economics is arguing against government regulation, which theoretically has the impact of killing off a lot of businesses before they can be created. And those costs are hidden and diffuse. It's similar with this human challenge trial versus regular sped up at the very least. We did things in parallel, etc. on these trials, but they were still slower than theoretically they could have been. In the abstract, of course, there's a lot of arguments against, well, not a lot of arguments, but there's been a few throwaway comments that I've heard that maybe human challenge trials efficacy is a bit overblown. Sure. Maybe it makes sense in your mind, economist, but shut up. We're vaccine makers. We've tried them for the flu vaccine where we're not going to kill people and we learn nothing out of them. So why don't you get back into your little box, please? Which I would love to hear more of, but I haven't explored that argument as to why they wouldn't work kind of thing. There's just a whole lot of people I read that are convinced that human challenge trials would have sped things up. And the reason that we are being held back from them is that ethically we can't harm people, even if it would save other people. I had a point. What the hell was my point when I brought up this guy? So the point with V that we were getting to, or to summarize the conversation so far, he was a big nerd. He's been writing for a fair while on Magic the Gathering as well as more abstract philosophical things. And in the last year, he started really ragging on, especially the West's response to coronavirus. His latest post, which I have read, which you have read, which you even quoted to me, which I didn't realize until I read it, was about this latest strain coming out of the UK that has been reported to have 70% greater virality, whatever that means. Yes. And what is the title of this post? Where... 
it's over. <laughs> Which perhaps summarises the mood of this post because if it's truly 70% more infectious. So the parallels that he draws a lot at the start is we seem to have this control mechanism to keep R0, R0 being the, the number of people who are infected by each infected person, at around one-ish, maybe slightly less than one in that like as soon as we get things under control, everyone's like, man, the virus seems to be doing pretty great and I sure haven't been to a bar for a while. So now that things are good, I'm going to go back to bars. And then a bunch more people get infected and I know it goes up a bit and then there's a whole lot of deaths reported in the paper and make people like, man, it really is dangerous out there. I don't need to go to the bar that much. I'm going to stay home this weekend. And then we drop below R0 equals one. We go up and down and up and down and governments have a, a, a part to play here in terms of mandating lockdowns and closing restaurants and removing those, those chances for people to infect each other. But if this strain of the virus is truly 70% more effective, then we would have to take lockdown measures effective enough to get R0 down to 0.6 or something under current viral conditions in order to just hit that R0 equals one. And that is something even the Victorian lockdowns, which were pretty draconian by global Western standards, I don't think even they hit R0 equals 0.6. And that would be just to stay stable. That is not going to fix this virus. That would just mean that only 2,000 people die per day until we get fully vaccinated or herd immune. And that just doesn't seem possible. So the title is, it's over because this variant is so much more infectious that there is nothing we can do. It will just rip through the community and it will hit everyone is the concern, which for a little while and maybe now made me want to sell off all my shares and buy maybe some gold and bullets and hide in a little bunker somewhere, uh, even though I'm in Australia, which has very low incidence of the virus right now. It's scary. It's definitely the, the picture that he paints is a quite a scary picture. That's quite intimidating. The clear points on it, purely applying that 70% increase onto your standard R0 measure of how current the COVID-19 strain versus what I'm calling the COVID-19. 20 strain. COVID, clever. Purely applying 70%. What did Melbourne get to at its lowest? I think if I look at the Chris Billington charts, it was 0.63. It was generally between like 0.65 and 0.75. It kind of fluctuated around there. And if you need to get down to 0.6, it's definitely worrying. Yeah, so what so what's V saying, if the 70% number is right, is under Victorian lockdown conditions, we would still be growing the virus. We wouldn't be containing it. We would be growing it slowly. It would be still getting worse under Victorian lockdown level conditions, which were harsh. You can't leave the house for more than an hour and day. You can't go more than five kilometers from your place of residence. They were really strict restrictions. And he obviously brings up a few points around how it applies to the UK and America, being that you just won't get compliance anyway, and it's all just signalling and yada, yada, yada. I mean, arguably, you didn't get full compliance in, in Victoria, I would add, knowing a few Victorians, being a Victorian. You don't get full compliance even when they are draconian. But, you know, it sets, it sets the expectation and people vary from that expectation rather than doing exactly what they might want to have done. Totally. And at that same point, he kind of explores a few of the other facets of, as to what could 70% mean. Does it purely mean the impact on R0? Does it mean an impact on the doubling rate, which was some guys thought? Yeah, there's a few different ways you could interpret what 70% extra means. I do think that the more papers are coming out to do that number. The latest number I heard was 56% rather than 70%, but it's still, it's scary. That's a big, that's a big jump in infectiveness. And so far, pardon me, it doesn't seem to come with a reduction because there was a theory early on in the virus that I remember, which was viruses, they're like any living organism trying to reproduce as much as possible. So the tendency is for evolution to select a virus that is more contagious, but less lethal because when they kill the host, all the virus dies. Maybe there was some hope that the more infective virus would be less 
less lethal. You know, it could just be another swine flu where apparently like 2 billion people got swine flu. Everyone freaked out in the early days because it killed some people. Billions and billions of people got swine flu and it's kind of just the flu or it mutated to just kind of be the flu and maybe that would be happening to this. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence that this is less lethal. It's just far more infectious, unfortunately. So to get to the affix part of this, so my critique there of Zvi applying a 70% increase or even having that as the maximum and applying a standard deviation to it to our basic R nulls is that's not necessarily how the world works. If you literally still have everyone locked down, you might get an R null of 60. And even if every contact that you have with people is 70% more infectious, by having Melbourne level lockdowns, you're still just interacting with the same people. You just actually don't contact that many people, so... So the transmission chain itself is still broken. It's just the probabilities themselves of the infectiousness change. Plausibly, what it could mean under a Melbourne-style lockdown kind of thing, if that's what's required, is that I would get COVID and I would go home and I would stay in my room and maybe just my mum would get sick. And with this new hyper-infectious version, I would go home, I would stay in my lockdown and both mum and dad would get sick. But because we're just one family unit, yep, it'll rip through our little family. But because we don't go anywhere, we don't leave the house, we can't break out into the wider community. That's a that's a, that's a pretty good pushback as to why lockdowns could plausibly still work. Building on that example, it could still be the same people get infected, they just get infected at a faster rate. So if I'm working in a hospital with everyone, I'm an essential worker, go to hospital. What previously happened was I'd infect Alice in my first week of work and Bob in my second week of work, and they're the only people I see. But now I'm actually infecting Alice and Bob in that first week. Which is still bad, but yes, perhaps not as disastrous as the title may indicate kind of thing. I mean, it looked really scary at the start. Yeah, well, if you look at the UK graph, it does look really scary. Their infection rate is going vertical. All the while, as they ramp out vaccines, at least they're vaccinating the right populations to start with. Yes, they're vaccinating well. Uh, slower than the US, but yeah, they're vaccinating well, which is better than Australia's doing. We still have no approval to use any vaccine thus far. And all we've got supply of is the Oxford vaccine, which isn't super effective, unfortunately. It was interesting seeing on Marginal Revolution, another blog we'll get to at some point, discussing Israel's current approach. So even in ultra-Orthodox Israel, they came out with religious rulings saying, no, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be vaccinating people 24-7. There is no break for the Sabbath. There is no break for religious holidays. We are working through this on the principle of saving lives. And that is the most important thing, which is a philosophy I can fully get behind as we just went over. This is the race, right? And this is why part of me wants to panic to sell all my shares because there's no way that the UK strain isn't already in at least the US and much of Europe. And it's quickly taken over in the UK and could quickly take over there. But the vaccine is extremely effective and being deployed fairly rapidly, maybe not as rapidly as some would like and plausibly not as rapidly as we could do without FDA regulation or if we had just thrown a bunch more money at the problem in the start. But it is it is rolling out pretty good. 100 million doses by the middle of the year, I think, in the US kind of thing. It's progress and it's far beyond what I would expect to see or would have expected to see. I remember at the very start of this throwing out to one of my senior stakeholders at work that it might be six months before they even come up with a way of developing a vaccine that could work before it's even tested and validated. Turns out that that had happened within two days. I know. Isn't that spectacular? These mRNA vaccines. Yeah, this whole vaccine that's being pushed live to everyone finally after 12 months was, yeah, invented in two days. Unbelievable. So that's just, yeah, astonishing. Good job, humanity. 
I played no part, but I was here. I was around. I was doing things. And, and an entirely new technology, from what I understand. This has never been used in previous vaccines. So we've developed entire, this mRNA vaccine is an entirely new way of developing vaccines to basically trick our bodies into making the vaccine itself. We're not trying to grow vaccine inside an egg and then inject it into you. We need to grow something else somehow that I don't understand because I'm not a biologist. Inject that into you and then the body manufactures its own vaccine, which is just astonishing. It's so clever. And yeah, we can apparently just write whatever protein chain we want to into it and vaccinate it against basically anything. And probably we should still do some trials because there may be unknown side effects, et cetera, et cetera. But that's pretty cool. Totally. I think the only other part of this that I wanted to cover off was not even in Zvi's post, but it was in another blogger called Put a Num on It, laid out a framework for interpreting this COVID UK strain, actually applying probability theory to what could be the outcomes here. And if there's a 30% chance that this could be catastrophic and even worse than COVID-19 in the first few months, you should probably be factoring that into your decision making. Chris has alluded to wondering about selling all his stocks there. That was what got me thinking about, oh, yeah, I'm worried about the stock market now because actually thinking probabilistically is very difficult. And a point that he makes there is what you see in all the government's behaviors is we're not going to do anything until it is actually certain. It doesn't matter about doing things on the probabilities. And I remember Scott Alexander on Slate Star Codex also wrote about this in the early days of COVID-19. The importance of actually being able to think probabilistically and take actions on that basis could have had a huge impact on the start of this pandemic. And it's unfortunate that even at this point, still no one seems to have internalized that. Even in my own life, even in everyone I know's life, it's so hard to treat a 1% chance as actually a 1% chance rather than a 0% chance. If there's a a 1% chance you're going to be the start of another cluster of COVID and explode it to all your friends kind of thing, you should really be avoiding that chance. But essentially, even my attitude a lot of the time is like, well, 1% chance is basically nothing. I know no one I know is infected, so I'll just go to that party. Why not? It's really hard to think probabilistically. It's really, really tempting to round off low chances to no chances, and they're not the same thing. And when everyone in a population of 20 million rounds off that 1% chance to zero, then we get an explosion of COVID cases because everyone's like, well, it's probably not me. None of my friends seem to have it. I'm just going to go to the pub. And then 1% of those people do become new clusters. Australia has actually done remarkably well despite that. But you can sort of see how the virus spreads in that everyone rounds down those 1% chances to zeros and does whatever they like because the chances are low, but the consequences are dire. Okay. That was a good discussion on Zv. That was a good discussion. I think it was a good overview of, you know, concerns on current COVID and a good covering of how we're looking at this, not necessarily how we feel about this, but just some thought process that go into abstractly and technocratically taking apart these kind of decision-making points and really stressful times around us rather than just commiserating. What do you think of Zv as a general blogger outside of his COVID stuff and being angry? I've read a bit of his other stuff. He's pretty, he's interesting kind of thing. He's a little bit uh, Robin Hansonian and that everything is signaling if you've read his thing about lions on the other side of the river. That gets a little bit, just gets a bit much for me. Maybe I'm just not exposed to real politicking and real power, but I just don't see that much in the powerful people that I know, I don't think. Is he enjoyable to read? I think he's enjoyable. Yeah, he's, he's angry. He's not super angry, but he's angry. I find him enjoyable to read. He's smart. Does a lot of linking out, which I get sick of because I'm like, I'm just not, I'm not going to read all these links out. Just tell me what the fuck you think. But I do think he's a good writer. And about what frequency does he post on? Weekly. Weekly roundup of your coronavirus news. That's his current shtick, but he's written about a whole lot of epistemology and theory, thoughts about thoughts and, you know. So that was the serious business of the podcast and honestly, probably more serious than we're ever going to get again. Who knows? I'm always serious when I'm talking to you, Brian. You're a very serious man. It rubs off on me quite quickly. At least I try to rub off some of my fun side on you, which I think works. Do you sometimes play games with me? 
I had a fun conversation this morning with a friend's fiance and she's like, you have no tones, Brian. You're always just flat. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is me excited. <laughs> you have to be Chris Carter to pick up on it though. <laughs> I thought that this is why we were called Affix. We find an article, we discuss it, and we put our own spin on it. You push back because you're smarter than me, and I just talk about it in the lens of different bloggers that I've read. So when you suggested the name Affix for our podcast, I'm like, that sounds cool. It makes a lot of sense. I like it a lot. But uh, why are we actually called Affix, Brian? Well, I think this is great evidence for why I'm not actually smarter than you. We are called Affix because I play a lot of Diablo 2, and Affixes are properties that come on magical items in Diablo 2. So Diablo 2, a brilliant game from Blizzard Entertainment released in the year 2000. The year 2000. Yep, you tricked me. So I'd already registered for the domain name before you told me this. But anyway, it's stuck now because it is a cool name. In the year 2000. What a classic. So Diablo 2, people have guilty pleasures and it is my guilty pleasure playing it, but especially watching speedruns of it. I am a fiend for speedruns and Diablo 2 just tickles that part of my brain. It's got a huge amount of randomness and it's got a huge amount of skill technique to it as well, which is an interesting sport to watch. Which is not obvious when you make me watch it, but it is quite fun having you point out the way that they're stepping and the way that they're hurting monsters, the subtle skills that come out when you're really, really good at something that is hard to notice when you're a beginner. I do. I actually enjoy watching Diablo 2 speedruns where you're pointing things out to me, except when they go to that whatever, the tower where they have to just farm rooms for half an hour. That's very boring. There's certain parts that get a bit repetitive. I think I like Diablo 2 speedruns for the same reason that I still do like Aussie rule football, which is Aussie rule football has a ridiculous amount of niche rules, and that is really alienating to any non-Australian who you ever try to introduce to the game. They're like, why can't this be simple? Kind of like soccer, like the hardest thing in soccer or football, like the offside rule. And that's not even that hard to explain. Whereas Aussie rules is, well, you've got to have the ball bounced every like six meters or something. So it's not even like basketball where you have to bounce it constantly. You've got like, you can't throw the ball. You have to handball it. You have to punch it away. If you drop the ball on the ground without properly trying to kick it while you're getting tackled to the ground, then it's a free kick to the other side. All these niche little things also apply to Diablo speedrunning where it's like, well, this particular item has this particular affix, which gives it certain benefits, which is really great over here and makes you stronger against these particular enemies. And if you can find that, which is a one in a hundred chance, then that's amazing. And knowing all those little intricacies, just it's very satisfying. It's the, the satisfaction of knowledge. It's fun to be there with an expert explaining it to you. I don't know whether I'm ever going to get into it on my own. It definitely, the few times that you've made me watch speedruns, it, it is enjoyable for having you point out those. I can get why you get it. And so we thought we steal from a bunch of our favorite podcasters because that's how you start something. And we're going to end each week with the news from Diablo 2 speedrunning. And I'm going to get a bit of my own, which we'll get to in a... Awesome. So news in Diablo 2 speedrunning this week. There's a bit of drama in the community. I never thought I'd be a drama podcaster or a person interested in drama, but there you go. I'm on the edge of my seat. Tell me the drama. Oh my gosh. For the last six years, all Diablo speedrunning records have been documented on this website, speedrun.com. And effectively, that has all the leaderboards. There have been really two moderators of those leaderboards, a guy from Germany called Teo, and I think a guy from Switzerland called Lav, who just kind of made up the rules as they went along. Teo used to be the guy who had like 27 out of 28 possible records on that leaderboard. And what has happened in those six years is as Twitch has gotten bigger as a platform where people like to watch video games, as people have stumbled across this as 
a niche that they could be interested in. More and more people are participating in Diablo speedruns, which makes more and more people upset with the way that those original founders set the rules. Oh, that does sound like a recipe for drama. Go on. About three months ago, maybe six months ago, Lav and Teo got everyone who was actively doing speedruns to come together and vote on a new rule set. So what they do currently is all based on you just start up the stock standard Diablo 2, the current patch of it, and you run through from the start of the game to the end of the game. And as soon as you beat the final boss without doing any keyboard commands or anything, that's the time. And what they found was in a particular way of playing, the time that your computer took to load a specific part of the map would really have an impact on what your time was. So they got it down to roughly it took an hour to go from start to finish in the run called Any Percent Normal. And what they found was a big part of Diablo 2 speedrunning is getting up to a certain level. You have to be level 20 to beat a certain boss before the end boss. And getting up to that level 20 means that you have to kill a lot of enemies and killing a lot of enemies in one specific area means just save and exiting the game and re-entering the game over again and to do it in this particular way you basically had to do that i think 20 30 times so if you had a slower computer those 20 30 times if it takes an extra five seconds really adds up in a speed run that takes an hour sure Sure. So we're turning Diablo 2 into a money sport. You've got to get the finest 3090 Ti to make sure you're running this game from the year 2000, which is sprite-based. got to have your NVMe plugged in, just smashing it. Why don't you just hold the whole game in RAM all the time? Why are you using an SSD? Exactly. Why don't we build ASICs that just run Diablo 2? That was kind of the end game they were getting to. So people were getting upset with that and also running that category was kind of boring. So people wanted to change the rules. They called together this big forum and people voted on the rules. And one of the biggest streamers, Ryu as a coddle he didn't like them at all so he was like i've got two thousand people who watch me every time i play diablo 2 which is pretty much the most people you ever get watching you as you play diablo 2 and he's like i don't like these rules i'm out i'm just going to do my own thing get stuffed and what's come up this week is that whole debate reopened and they're like well what we're going to do is actually set up a completely different site to have all these speedrunning leaderboards. And Ryo Ketsukoto came in again and just started slagging off all the old mods and Teo, who used to have all the records, and he's like, oh, you're a big dictator and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, no, what a sellout. Dramas, guys. Diablo 2, come on, it's not that serious. People love drama. People do love drama. You seem to love drama. I'm such a drama fiend. My section is coffee bets. So we started this podcast because we no longer have coffee with each other every single morning. And this gives us an opportunity to catch up in a deliberate way. And every now and then I will throw out with my friends something that I think will happen in the future. And I will bet a coffee on it kind of thing. It's a very low stakes bet. You know, a coffee is $4. And usually Brian will bet on financial things with me where he could actually make tens of thousands of dollars based on what he's betting on. And he's usually right. But instead of making that tens of thousands of dollars, I owe him a coffee. So I owe you a couple of coffees. We've got a little list that we'll put in the show notes of our current coffee bets. We made one last week in a defunct podcast, which will never make it to air because the microphone just crackled about how this New South Wales cluster is going to go. But today's bet is on the first vaccination in Australia, which I have minimal knowledge on. I do know that Dr. Norman Swan is talking about approvals being in about March. Do we think we can accelerate that? The way these bets can work is that we can trade off. Like we should both be happy to take either side of the bet or at least one of us should be happy to take either side of the bet before the bet is locked in. So March seems like a good default. I would bet that we can get the first vaccination out before March. And we could just leave the bet there if you think like, definitely after March or let's say before the 1st of March. So let's say February 28th. 
Yep. If, if anyone in Australia is vaccinated before February 28th or earlier, then I will win the bet. Would that be a satisfactory bet or do you think we can also rush it? Mm, I'm a bit worried about the anyone clause there. People have been vaccinated already as part of trials. But excluding that, we've seen that the Moderna vaccine is the one that's primarily being rolled out in the States right now. So maybe we want to peg it on that. We could peg it on that. Oxford vaccine is the one that Australia is getting. Yeah, we don't want to be caught up by supply constraints, you're right. So let's say the 100th vaccination. The 100th vaccination. Sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Full proper vaccination, not part of a trial, not part of a secondary trial or whatever. I think we're vaccinating the elderly and frontline medical workers first as it rolls out to them, 100 people vaccinated. Yeah. Perfect. I'll let you take that side of the bet before February 28th. Before February 28th. Yep. Excellent. All right. I'll put it in the list of coffee bets. There's a few in there from the past, one of which I think that I'm going to win in the next couple of days because we did have a bet on the infection fatality rate of COVID where if it is greater than 0.75%, then I will buy you a coffee and otherwise you will buy me one. And the latest numbers I sort out of the WHO is it's 0.2%, which this bet was made, when was it made? April, maybe? Yeah. It would have been May, I think. It was early days, and this was the time when most of the media was talking about infection fatality rates in the 5 to 10% mark. So we were both quite conservative versus that number, which I think we can be justly proud of. I do think it's quite low. And there was an interesting point raised on one of the podcasts I listened to, which is like, it is now skewing low because the people who are really vulnerable, the elderly, are actually locking down pretty hard and not seeing the community. So all the people who are actually getting it aren't that likely to die on the count of the fact that the virus doesn't impact the young and healthy terribly much. It's an interesting wrinkle in the infection fatality rate and what it might possibly be if it ripped evenly through the population or whether that's even a realistic thing to measure. Anyway, I just found that an interesting point in the infection fatality rate is not a pure property of the virus. It is a property of how the world responds to it as well, even in a non-medical sense. Kind of. Yeah, thing. that's interesting because what I had assumed in those declines in the fatality rate was better treatment options and people figuring out how to treat it more effectively. Also true. Dexamethasone seems good. Ventilators seem possibly not as good as was hoped in the early days. Vitamin D? Everyone seems to like vitamin D these days. Is that a good so I mean, I think is the latest one that's going around. Some kind of anti-inflammatory treatment. All right, so how many live bets have we got going? We have five by my count, one of which closes soon. The New South Wales cluster, we put less than 10 for a three-day average, but I want to renege on that bet because it doesn't feel like New South Wales is over. I don't feel like it's fair if this does blow up. So our last bet was if there's greater than 70 cases per day in New South Wales as part of this cluster, then I will win the bet. And we had a bit of a debate about what, what counts as this cluster. We're talking about community infections and we put it at less than 10, which I sort of agreed with, but now having seen New South Wales bubble away at seven or eight, it just doesn't feel over to me. So I still think there is the possibility that we get to greater than 70, although I will concede that potentially I was being more pessimistic than you and that I may just be wrong. I just don't feel like I'm wrong yet. So I was gracious enough and kind enough to my good friend, Chris, to offer that we cut it down from average of 10 over three days to be average of under five per five days to be the end of this cluster. And if we peak below 70 in the way for New South Wales, then I win a coffee somehow. Somehow. Or we cancel out one of the other coffee bets that we have and we'll just keep a running total. That's less fun. I'm not going to commoditize our coffee bets. Come on, man. We're not making a futures market out of this. We could make a future market out of these if we wanted to. That feels like an economics thing to do. 28th of February, this bet closes and I'll write in the criteria later. And you guys can check. We've got fatality rate. We've got the single day New South Wales. We've got a bet on the Aussie dollar, which is that it will go over 80 cents by the 2nd of June 2021 for some reason. Weird date to choose, but sure. There's a few long-term bets. I like a, a long-term bet. I think the 80 cent bet, so that June 2nd date, which is really weird. I think that's when I actually made the assertion that it will be within a year 
God, I was prescient. Why don't I actually trade on these insights? This is what I'm saying. You've made bets on Tesla stock, right? Where you're like, I bet Tesla stock will make it to a million dollars a share or whatever the hell it made it to. And I'm like, oh, I'll bet a coffee on that. I don't think it will. And if you had have just bought one Tesla share, you would have won 500 coffees worth of dollars. But instead, you just won one coffee off Chris Carter, which just it's not as good. Re- it was a very tasty coffee, though. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you at least got non-monetary satisfaction out of it, even if that doesn't exist in your cold economic brain. I need you, Brian, to edit this in every 30 seconds or so for the rest of the podcast. All right, listeners, I know it's going to be boring, but I will hold you to this. My dog's barking. Oh, no, that's allowed. That's part of a podcast. Is he going to shut up? Only if you yell at him. I I stare intently out the window.